In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the fields, many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path to omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening. Tonight we continue our exploration of how matter comes together, how matter um, exists, manifests, appears, and in particular how matter comes together. Seems like we went through that last week. <laughs> the matter just like keeps going on endlessly, so maybe we can skip some of it and there's some new sections. And then we go on to time. So we're starting on page 225, which is section 16 of part, part something or other, part three, part three, section 16, or chapter 16. I think all you need is the chapter number because the, the chapters are incremental and don't start over again for each part. Anyway, analyzing whether indivisible particles exist. How many of you think they exist, by the way? Barbara, all right. The view of the non-Buddhist schools, such as the Vaisheshikas, they shake a lot, and so on, is that subtle particles are partless or indivisible, that they're the cause of the material substances that constitute a composite whole, that they're spherical in shape, that was new, and that when the particles, sorry, partless particles form coarse physical entities, they do so without coming into contact with one another. Just like physics, right? They have like a magnetic field around them and they don't actually touch. Isn't that neat that they came up with that idea? You're not impressed. Nobody's impressed. Okay. The view of these schools is summarized by Chandra Kirti, who is not a Vaisheshika and he was one of their fiercest critics. So it's a little odd to be quoting somebody like him as describing a particular tradition, but. That which is the cause is spherical and lacks directional parts. These are the characteristics of the substances that represent subtle particles. So they call particles the cause. Particles act as the cause for the appearance of dust on the table. That's that's where we uh, that's uh, where we experience the coming together of matter most directly in our world right it's like you you dust one day and everything's clean and there's nothing there and then the next day it begins to accumulate and finally 
after day two or depending on where you live you can see it it's visible so the the particles of dust come together and they form dust motes and the dust particle is the tenth subtle particle that makes up the aggregate atoms just checking to see if you guys are paying attention at all <laughs> Bodhibhadra's text says furthermore these non-Buddhist Vaisheshikas shame on them assert such that means that they assert that when this world is destroyed only permanent subtle particles of earth water fire and wind which lack spatial location remain in their own on their own this is a something i think we get into later is the uh the world systems uh but there's this whole system of aeons of 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 sorry world systems that uh, are born and develop and then they are destroyed and there's four different ways they're destroyed they're destroyed by fire earth wind and water not in that order though right earth water fire and wind and um, at that time, only subtle particles, according to some traditions, still exist and make it through to the next birth of the next universe. Sort of interesting. Um, and they have these weird notions of like um, what remains after the universe is consumed by fire versus water and so forth and wind they there's like um cycles of like the the universe is consumed is destroyed seven times by earth and then once by water and then seven times by water and then once by fire and then um you know so it's more rare if that makes any sense not really but blaze of the, the oddest sorry. thing about that statement is the part about these particles lacking spatial location yeah yeah and not touching isn't that cool well i mean the, the not touching part i can kind of deal with in some way as you said if you think about electrons or whatever that but the notion that you could have a have matter in no place oh at the end of the universe when the universe collapsed well just right. which lacks spatial, spatial location, location remain that's a, on their that's own a concept that's a little beyond yeah yeah what does it mean remain on their own anyway the blaze of reasoning which is a text by Veka, also notes that in the vibhashika system which is the early buddhist system it's maintained that when indivisible subtle particles create coarse physical entities they do so without coming into contact with one another i'll skip the quote i'll try i mostly skip quotes tonight to go through it more quickly as for the buddhist vibhashikas so i'm on 226 now they maintain that since these subtle particles themselves lack parts they do not come into contact with one another when a single particle is surrounded by other particles an intervening gap remains between them for if such particles were to touch one another from all spatial directions they would merge in one into one 
in, in one or into one single particle. And if such contact were to take place in specific spatial directions, there would be the erroneous consequence that such particles possess parts. It's a, it's, it's an, you know, it's sort of like an amazing theory to come up with this idea of partless particles that occupy no space, they have no location, and somehow they come together without touching and form composite matter. <laughs> it's like, how did they come up with like two completely opposite phenomena? Uh, because if, uh, if they have no sides or parts or location or spatial orientation, then, then uh, other particles merge with them and uh, wholly, they don't like merge just on this side or that side. But anyway, question. If subtle particles within accumulated composite matter do not contact one another, how is it that they do not disintegrate? In response, it stated that such particles are held together by wind. And wind was the final element in the scheme of the destruction of the universe by the different elements. Wind, like uh, trumps, to use a painful word, trumps all the other elements in the destruction of the universe. Um, that are held together by wind and that it is also through the connection sustained by the power of their substances that they remain without disintegrating. So they sort of, it's like a, a priority matter, like uh, sort of like God. It's like everything else follows certain laws except the, the first most important fundamental thing that we propose. Skipping these quotes. Actually, let's, let's look at the uh, second quote. Like indivisible beads strung together, which are of mutual benefit to one another, atoms cannot be dissected, just like a vajra and so on. So vajra is indestructible substance that can't be cut up. So vajras come of certain sizes and you can't like make them bigger or smaller. Just as spirits or snakes are captured by the force of mantra, some say it is possible that atoms are held together by the force of substance. Interesting, you know, sort of weird, uh, weird the way it's phrased, but clearly sort of um, complex idea of forces as opposed to perceivable entities. Others say this weak, gravitational force, this force is too weak. Vasubandhu's opinion is, do subtle particles make contact with each other or not? The Kashmiri Sarvastavadan school says they don't. Why? Because first, if they were to make contact in all spatial directions, their substances would merge. But if they made contact in a single direction, it would follow they had parts. But subtle particles do not have parts. And if they construct coarse matter owing to their accumulation, why should they not be destroyed? Response, because they're supported by the wind element. So there's this idea that everything's impermanent and gets destroyed except subtle matter. You don't really find out about this, about the early schools until you scratch the surface of how they consider matter. Otherwise, they're like, well, everything's impermanent. 
Oh, but subtle particles aren't. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> according to the Treasury of Knowledge's auto-commentary, which is also by Vasubandhu, the South Trantica master, Badanta asserted that if subtle particles were to contact one another, they would possess parts. Yet if there were gaps, then particles of light would penetrate during the day, and particles of darkness would penetrate during the night. Isn't that cool? It's like, um, how can there be darkness in light? Can light and dark interpenetrate? You know, which immediately reveals that the way they think about light and dark is like as a substance. Well, it calls it a particle. That's what I was thinking is amazing. Yeah, particles of darkness and particles of light. Yeah, isn't that amazing? So although there exists no such gaps <laughs> between the particles of light, how about that? Particles of darkness have no gaps. <laughs> they, they join without gaps between them. Um, so although there exists no such gaps, particles exist without touching one another. Skipping, let's skip some quotes. Um, one might wonder, skipping both those quotes, if subtle particles do not make contact with one another, then in consequence, heat would not undermine cold and light would not eliminate darkness because they don't touch each other. But in response, it's said that when particles of heat or light come into close proximity with their opposites, then heat particles prevent the near approach of cold particles. So how do they keep them away if they don't touch? How do light particles keep dark particles away? <laughs> and how do heat particles keep cold particles away? Is it because they don't uh, they don't shower, so they smell bad or something. They don't brush their teeth, maybe. <laughs> they also are sort of ignoring the fact that there is such a thing as heat transfer. Yeah, yeah. It's like heat is like a particle instead of like heat being transferred into, you know, how do they describe that? Like where a, a piece of iron warms up. Right, it doesn't seem like they allow for that. They seem to be just talking about yeah, mutual separation, but there's all sorts of processes in the world that would have been yeah, they, their time. Yeah, they, yeah, they they would heat. They were heating up iron. They were making pottery and firing it. In Fires, a just fire, you know, fire. Just, fi yeah, just heating up. Yeah, just making tea. Yeah. <laughs> what are they doing there? Right. So yeah, that doesn't make any sense. It's weird. That that one is quite weird. Um, It is this activity that is characterized as undermining of cold and darkness, subterfuge. So Trontagos do not admit that the particles within composite entities come into contact with one another. This is stated, for example, in blah, blah, blah. Let's see, skip that. Therefore, although both Vibhashikas and Sautrontikas are similar, inserting that subtle particles are partless do not come into contact with one another. An apparent distinction emerges between the two. The Vaibhashikas say there are gaps, whereas Sautrantikas maintain no such intervening gaps. Now, if you weren't already a, like a Chittamatran mind-only person before you studied the, this whole stuff about matter, then surely you 
agree with Chittamatra at this point. I mean, how can you explain matter? Isn't matter the most illogical thing there is? No? So, just, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Cynthia. They, they talk about that the particles within the composites do not come in contact with one another. Did they, I, I don't know, I can't remember, what's the view of the composite things themselves can contact each other, but not the particles within them? Is that? Yeah, I didn't see any mention of that. So, with, so the so particle. How could that, I mean, you know, yeah. it's like, is there, that would suggest that there's some outer surface that's not subtle particles that's allowed to touch, you know, a board can touch another board. But right. It, yeah, that's, that's a totally contradictory. That's a good one. It's like, so subtle particles come together and form an, you know, a rabbit particle and then an iron particle or whatever the hell, sheep particle, and then visible matter. And so is, is all of a sudden visible matter is able to touch other visible matter because it has like a veneer on top of it or something? Because <laughs> right, I mean, the, the thing is that that's where the level of observability comes into play. Yeah, thanks, Touch. And, yeah. and it doesn't seem doesn't seem to be addressed. Yeah. Well, they knew that things never really touch, right? In physics, things never really touch. They repel each other. There's always a space between phenomena. They only appear to touch. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The thinking of those who assert indivisible particles is as follows in response to all your questions. Take coarse physical entities such as earths and rocks, for example, and break them into pieces. I love this part. Through a process of reducing the entity into progressively smaller units, one must eventually reach a point beyond which no further dissection can take place. Now, if that subtle particle possesses parts, it could be still it could still be divided further, which would mean that it's not the finest, smallest, discrete unit. So either one must assert it to be devoid of parts or admit an infinity of divisible parts. If one were to accept such an infinity of parts, it would be impossible to reach the limit of divisibility even for a single drop of water. And this is a conundrum, not just to them, but to physicists, right? Morgan, has, have physicists figured out like what's going on in the, on the micro level there? Any sort no, of... No, they just keep finding smaller things or proposing smaller things. I don't know if they're finding them. Oh, logically, they, they determine that there must be like this and that because they observe some other weirdness. So right. they don't actually so they, see them anymore. Um, they see evidence of them if they're lucky. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 I believe that the, the subtlest thing they're up to now is strings. Um, but then the question is, well, what are the strings made of? I'm wondering if, in terms of what this particular paragraph is talking about, the, the problem of infinity, what, do, do modern scientists have a view about that idea of sort of going, being able to go infinitely smaller and smaller and smaller, and that being, do they accept that? I mean, here they're basically saying that's, that makes it impossible does modern science view that as possible? You know that. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I mean it, it doesn't seem like they 
they allow for an infinity of smaller pieces. They keep thinking they're going to find the fundamental piece. That can't be taken apart. So essentially they're in the, they're somewhat similar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Unbreakable part, unbreakable uh, building blocks of reality. I had never really thought about that particular aspect in terms yeah. of modern science. Yeah. yeah, but they're definitely in the same boat. Interesting. Um, that's the Indian philosophical schools from the non-Buddhist Vaisheshikas to the Buddhist Sautrantikas because they're all substantialists, equally assert that if one were to reduce coarse physical entities to their smallest discrete units, one would arrive at the indivisible subtle particles that are the basic constituents of coarse physical entities. The difference is that non-Buddhist schools, such as the Vaisheshikas, assert that these particles are permanent, whereas the two Buddhist schools assert them to be impermanent. As for Madhyamaka and Chittamatra and masters, they do not accept in, indivisible partless particles. Okay, this part was... Uh, no, later on. Okay. In fact, in the writings, numerous logical arguments are presented to refute the concept of indivisible subtle particles. For example, the following refutation of indivisible particles occurs in Vasubandhu's 20 verses. Now, this is the same guy that wrote the Treasury of Abhidharma, but uh, in between writing these two texts, he was converted, so to speak, by his brother Asanga, who locked him in a hut for like a week and made him read Mahayana Sutras and wouldn't let him out until he converted <laughs> Sort of a brotherly thing to do, right? Anyway, so this is a Chittamatra so-called text. If one were to analyze the smallest discrete particle that is asserted to be partless, one must admit that it possesses parts for when a single particle alleged to be the smallest elementary particle is surrounded on six sides. We've seen this these arguments before, right? Etc. 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 Let's see. And the quotes repeat that in the text and the auto commentary. So we've seen these. So going to after the two quotes, thus Fasabanda presents the arguments at the bottom of page 229 that if subtle particles lacked obstructive resistance, then however many were to accumulate, they would merely retain the size of a single particle. You couldn't agglomerate. Also, if such particles do not possess spatial dimension corresponding to specific directions, then consequently when sunlight strikes one face of a material entity, shade would not fall on any of its other sides. In this way, Vasubandhu establishes that so-called subtle particles must possess spatial dimensions and obstructive resistance. Asanga, for instance, states in facts of the grounds Bhumi Vastu, that although subtle particles are endowed with parts they do not constitute composite wholes composite entities possess spatial dimensions the subtle particles too have spatial dimensions etc etc skipping the rest of the quote thus both subtle particles and composite form possess parts since they have spatial dimensions form that is an assembly of partless I'm sorry, form that is an assembly of particles possesses components since it has subtle particles that constitute its parts. Subtle particles are indeed components since they are parts of form that is an assembly of particles, but they are not composite wholes. 
the refutation of indivisible particles in the text of the Madhyamaka Yogacara masters Shantarakshita and his student Kamala Shila can be understood from Shantarakshita's auto commentary in the ornament of Madhyamaka, Madhyamaka Lamkaravritti. Thus, the followers of Kanada, Kanada was, I think, the Vaisheshika guy. Let's see, let's skip this quote because it's just endlessly the same thing over and over again, basically. So skipping that quote, 231, so, some assert that indivisible particles have no intervening gap between them. Some assert that particles are encircled by many particles with intervening gaps between them, while others say, while others say that particles merely appear to make contact since there are no intervening gaps between them, but they don't actually make contact. It's sneaky, very sneaky of them. But all these views merely serve to reify the particle. In accordance with the assertion that particles have no intervening gaps, even if it's said that particles don't touch, then they must meet, <laughs> get to know each other. And if particles meet on all sides, they would merge through interpenetration. And if they meet on one side on the other, then the game's up. They have parts. Even if it were accepted that there were intervening gaps between them, this would demonstrate the counter-argument that another particle other than the subtle particle of darkness at night and light during the day would intervene between them and refute the existence of an indivisible particle. Okay, okay. Enough of this like goes on endlessly. I have one Two. question, though. The, the notion that if something touches, it has to interpenetrate, that seems to be like a core assumption they make. Well, if it has no parts, then it, it's it's touching the entire particle at the same time. Right, but oh, oh okay. And are we still? I'm sorry. This is here. We're still talking about indivisible ones. Okay. I thought yeah. we had after Vazubandhu. I thought we had moved on to. Uh, I, yeah. Well, he's criticizing those right. that view. He then, says there so are then no, he, there's no he, matter. He establishes that that essentially, I mean, what it says here, particles must have dimensions and all that, whereas like the Majagamakas don't necessarily believe all that either, right? Whereas he's yeah. sort of an in-between. Well, he was a mind only. He dismisses external matter. Okay. So so what they gave, what they quoted him, those those quotes from Vasubandhu are part of his refutation of matter, of external matter. Oh, so that's just reputation. And then he basically says, and none of this makes sense. And so therefore we move on. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. And then we have the Madhyamaka system. So uh, Aryadeva, Nagarjuna's student, writes that his most famous text, or only famous text, seems to be, no, actually he had one other text, the five, 400 stanzas. Catchy title. Arguments are presented to refute the concept of indivisible subtle particles. For example, it argues that if composite entities are formed through subtle particles coming into contact with one another, it, in that case, if all their corresponding parts were to make contact, it would be impossible for them to increase in mass. There's no way to agglomerate. If, on the other hand, they made contact with some parts and not others, those parts that came into contact would become the cause of composite matter, while other parts that do not make contact would not be such a cause. That would This would mean that subtle particles are divisible. In that case, subtle particles would become entities that have diverse aspects with the implication that it would be illogical to assert that they are permanent. 
Furthermore, if subtle particles were devoid of spatial dimensions, there would be the flawed consequence that no particles could exist on each of the particle's four sides. If, on the other hand, they do possess spatial dimensions. Anyway, this is just sort of the same argument over and over and over again. The only interesting thing is that <clears throat> they, they obviously didn't have, um, what is it? Uh, um, when you're a writer and you're trying to get a book published, you hire a, uh, a publicist, an agent. Oh. Yeah. They clearly didn't have book agents. I mean, there's no agent in the world that would have let Arya David get away with calling his book the 400 stanzas. <laughs> that just will not, not going to sell. Um, they quote from Arya David, they quote from Chandra Kirti, huge long quote in summary. Summary would be good. Page 235, after the long quote from Chandra Kirti. Summary with regard to the subtle particles that are basic constituents, of course, physical entities, there does exist a divergence of views in the text of the lower and upper Abhidharma systems, Vasubandhu versus Asanga, as well as those of the Madhyamaka. 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 Hmm as to whether such particles are indivisible and also whether the material forms composed of the accumulation of such particles possess real external existence. This said, broadly speaking, there exists no difference in how subtle and coarse levels of matter material form are posited. When examined by the Chittamatra Madhyamaka schools, even the smallest unit of matter, the subtle particles that the two realist Buddhist schools by Bashak and Sautrantik assert to be indivisible, turn out to possess spatial dimensions. Furthermore, so long as something is posited to be a material entity characterized by obstructive resistance, it will have to be admitted to possess dimensions, even though one may analyze the dimensions of particles and dimensions of those dimensions for an aeon, which seems like how long this book is going through on about this subject, for as long as something is defined as possessing the identity of a particle, there can be no end or limit to the dimensionality or division of them. So a particle can never transcend itself as a material entity. It is, however, important to recognize that the kind of deconstruction referred to here is really from the perspective of thought experiments and not through physically dis deconstructing such particles. Because they didn't have uh, particle accelerators. In brief, Madhyamaka and Chittamatra thinkers seem to view the subtle particle to be a material form conceived by the mind that represents the smallest point arrived at through the process of mentally dividing ment material entities into their constituent elements. How do you like that? They just sort of say that, well, there's real matter is composite matter, but the subtle particles that make them up is mentally derived form, and it doesn't really exist. <laughs> so you have matter, conglomerate matter, that's sort of has some level of existence, but it's not made up of anything. But in the, in the Majamaka's system, they wouldn't view those as existing either, would they? Not, not truly existing. Okay, right. So essentially, they, they're both mental. Well, Madhyamaka doesn't say that they're mental or not, but that's a complex subject mm -hmm. which we'll come to. Okay, so uh, since it is thought to have shape and impedes other particles, subtle particles from occupying its own place in space, it is characterized by obstructive resistance. 
Furthermore, it does not exist in isolation, but as part of a collection of the particles of the four primary elements. Also, given that it possesses spatial dimensions and is part of a composite of other particles, it is a component, but not a composite whole. In itself, it's understood to be a phenomenon emerging from a process of deconstruction and belongs to the category of derivative form. I think I skipped the first sentence, which is that they both view subtle particle to be, no, I read that, yeah. Despite the fact that Manyamaka and Chittamatra thinkers are similar in rejecting the notion of partless particles, the final grounds in which they reject indivisible particles are different. For the Chittamatra, there is no such thing as an atom that has an objective external reality. So what is called an atom represents a subtle state defined in terms of a progressive division undertaken on the basis of what is conceived in the mind. There's a little uh, twist here going on. There's a little slant here. You know, this is written by Madhyamakans. And they're viewing the Chichamatra uh, quotes or view that they've quoted here as stemming from a, 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 um, an initial view that there's no real matter. And what, what I think they're missing is that the Chichamatrans come to that conclusion by, re, by refuting the logicality, that's a good word, by refuting the existence of external matter because it's completely illogical. So then they come to that point of view. Whereas the authors have switched that around. It's like the authors say, well, they don't believe in external matter, therefore they're refuting subtle particles. Anyway. Therefore, composite course physical entities formed through the aggregation of such particles are but perceptions of the mind and thus not objective external reality. This is a standpoint shared similarly by the Swatantrika Madhyamaka Master Shantarakshata and his buddy Kamala Shila, who belong to the lower school of Swatantrika Madhyamaka. You get that slant, that little jibe. <laughs> over and over again. As for the great, <laughs> the great Madhyamaka masters of the Prasangaka Madhyamaka school, such as Chandrakirti, whether it is the subtle atom or coarse physical entities formed by them apart from their realities, mere imputations designated by the minds in terms of this or that, they admit nothing can be found objectively as being this or that phenomena. How does that differ from the Chittamantrans? You let me know. Therefore, as it emerges extremely clearly from their writings, these thinkers do not accept any notion of indivisible particles or indivisible moments of consciousness. <sighs> moments? Where did that come from? Huh? The justification of the non-Buddhist schools uh, to postulate the notion of indivisible particles as ultimate constituents of matter is the following, that the objects of external reality do have an existence is something affirmed by our direct perceptual experience. Right? We all see the matter around us. When one examines the existence of these physical entities, it's established that coarse physical entities are composed from the accumulation of their subtler constituent elements. And when the process of reduction from coarse to subtle is pursued, an endpoint has to be admitted where no further deconstruction can take place. If no such endpoint exists, there would be no explanation at all for how subtle coarse physical entities come to exist through aggregation which is exactly what Chittamatra and Vedyamaka come to. Uh, let's see. 
they uphold the basic tenet according to which, at least with respect to causally efficacious entities, when the referent object is sought, a real obje objective basis is found. They believe that there's something there. However, Nagarjan and his buddies, especially those who are known as the Prasangikas, Magadhyamakas, such as Chandrakirti and Shanti Deva, explain that such a view is held because of confusion about the mode of being a phenomenon, which is the absence of inherent existence. Thus, these masters refute any notion of objective inherent existence. So they, they refute the initial assumption that there's real matter around us or composing us, or that there's an us, for that matter. In their own system, such Madhyamaka masters assert that for any phenomena, whether external or internal, their mode of existence can only be posited in a nominal, conventional way. In an ultimate sense, moreover, notions such as identity, difference, parts, and whole, counter, components, and composite entities, and so on, cannot be posited at all. Hence, they maintain that one cannot speak of the essential nature characteristics of something like indivisible particles, which is why they went on for like a hundred pages on it. But on a conventional level, however, in subtle particles that others view as indivisible are dependent originations that are solely reliant on other phenomena. A little odd that they have to backtrack in that way. Hence, nothing can exist that possesses real independent existence, and even the mind cannot establish such existence. Thus, they declare no phenomena, whatever it may be, transcends the nature of dependent origination. It's the ultimate law of reality. Cynthia? I just had one question about that, that area where they were talking about the great Madhyamaka. Well, oh, I see. I, there they were just using it as an adjective to describe the masters. I was thinking that there's other places where we've heard the great, that great terminology, but it's a whole different thing there, right? That's what it we're is. in the Shantang world and all that. Yeah, there's even, uh, before Shantong, people like Wang Shandorje, right. um the Sakyas, uh, many of the Kagyu Karmapas, many of the they're all Kagyu. Many of the Karmapas up until like the ninth were Rongtongs, were basically Prasangikas. But they weren't like Rongtong Prasangikas in the way that Tsongkhapa was. And they all complained endlessly about Tsongkhapa. And so that's so, where, right, I'm sorry, I went too far with the So that's why they say great Madhyamaka. They say great Prasangika Madhyamaka. So Longchenpa, for instance, adheres quite closely to Prasangika and Chandra Kirti and so forth. But uh, he believes that he and many of the others like him, like Mipam, believe that the Galupas version of Prasangika is wrong, simply. Right, so that great Madhyamaka, that's pretty much all of those karmapas, etc. That's where that comes into play. It's used more in the in the Nyingma tradition, but right. yeah. I, I just when I saw it there, I kind of thought about that and just wanted to make sure I understood how they that they're totally different. Yeah, great, good. <laughs> so, uh, in the sake of time, for the sake of time, I thought maybe we could start the subject of time by just going around seeing if anybody has a definition of time. Can anybody tell me what they think time is? Morgan, what is time? It's what keeps everything from happening at once. It's what keeps everything from happening 
at the same time. That's neat. Wasn't there a movie that came out recently called Everything Everywhere All at Once? Did you guys see that movie? Anyone see that? Oh, it was a great movie. If you get a chance, you got to check that out. It must be on Netflix. Everything Everywhere All at Once. Who, whose movie? Do you know? I have no idea whose it was. Okay. It's a wild movie. It's a wild ride. Um, that was good. Thank you. Uh, okay. Let's skip the introduction. The introduction was very good. The introduction to this section was really good. But it felt like it just duplicates everything that's in the in the text. So either we read one or the other. And I thought maybe we'd go for the text as that, if we have time, so to speak. Um, and actually, there's a little definition of time. At, uh, at some point, they where was that? Well, one place where it says what the Sarvastivadins think it is: time is a non-associated conditioning factor with a less substantial reality than matter and consciousness. Yeah. Okay, well, let's go through it. There's a there's a bad there's a joke about like what is time, but anyway, the definition of time. Time it is an essential topic that needs to be understood as part of the category of non-associative formative factors. Am I in the right place at the right time? Not Definitely. sure where you are actually. Yeah. yeah. So I'm in chapter seventeen. Um. On a partless particle on page 251, right on time, <laughs> being on time. Rip Chung Bouchet gave a talk called Being on Time. Time is an essential topic that needs to be understood as part of the category of non-associated formative factors, which has been discussed early in general. There is a shared recognition among the classical Indian philosophers that when exploring the nature of reality, it's vitally important to also present the nature of time. Time is like a substance. Do any of you think of time as a substance, or is time just like not a, not a real thing, but it's just a description of like the way uh, the duration of how th of the uh, happening of things i don't think of it as a substance i think of it as a construct that we use to uh, organize things organize activities and yeah. things like that yeah so we can tell people they're late or things like that yeah um however a divergent a divergence of views exists as to what is the actual nature of time. If we were to take the view of the non-Buddhist Vaisheshika school, for example, just out of for interest, for example, they classify objects of knowledge in terms of six categories. Substance, quality, motion, universal, particular, and inherent. Substance, in turn, is differentiated by non-permanent substance and permeate, sorry, substance in turn is differentiated by non-permeating substance and permeating substance. So there's some things that permeate and some things that don't. Time, self, 
spatial direction and space constitute permeating substances. Isn't that a cool idea? I mean, it doesn't really make any sense, but it's a, it's a really neat idea that, that these are four things, so to speak, that permeate reality in some way. And they view them as substances that are unborn and permanent. Furthermore, they say time matures the elements, time assembles the people. <laughs> time makes the trains come, time awakens from sleep. It is extremely difficult to transcend time. <laughs> That's what the Kala Chakra Tantra is all about, is transcending time, by the way. Thus they assert time to be distinct in nature from temporal entities, which is the agent of all activities and a permanent substance. Time is revealed or illustrated by moments, day and night, by hours, and so on. From among the classical Indian Buddhist schools, the Vaibhashikas assert that since the three times possess the characteristics of conditioned phenomena, time is not permanent. So changes every moment right on time. This said, they do maintain time to be substantially existent yet distinct from temporal substance. Temporal substance is a vague term here, but uh, substantially existent. That we looked at that earlier, and you know, we have three categories of substantial existence we have mind, we have matter. And we have non-associated formations, and they're all held to be substantially existent in the sense that they have a basis, that, that there is a basis for the uh, imputation of uh, category upon them by someone observing them. They assert that since all conditioned phenomena are characterized by arising and during and disintegrating that the three times exist, and furthermore, all conditioned phenomena that exist in the three times are substantially established. All conditioned phenomena that exist in the three times are substantially established. All conditioned phenomena consists are, are either mind, matter, or non-associated formations. They don't really talk about unconditioned phenomena in this chapter that I could see. As to how phenomena are said to possess substantial existence, in general, Vaibhashikas assert that any phenomena must be capable of bearing its own distinct entity, identity. And since for them no phenomena can be posited merely as a projected reality imputed to some other phenomena, they assert that all phenomena are substantially established. <laughs> that was an interesting statement. So. This, uh, uh, let's see, substantially existent. I gave my definition a minute ago, but here they're saying substantially existent according to the Vaibhashikas. And this is probably among all the stuff about matter and time, this is probably the most important thing because it, it impacts our understanding of emptiness later on. Vaibhashikas assert that any phenomena that must be capable of bearing its own distinct identity. So all phenomena have their own distinct identity. And they bear it as if there's the phenomena and its identity. And I forgot to mention, you know, at the end of the day, 
part of the whole scheme that this laboriously long like many aeons long process of going through all of compounded phenomena is sort of getting at is that um, are there entities that have no characteristics and then as we we then perceive them as having color sound making sounds having certain textures having weight and so forth so do phenomena possess color as like something that's an attribute of them so when we say there's a white piece of paper is there like a piece of paper and it has whiteness or a horse that has whiteness so is there a phenomena that has no color that really the phenomena itself is is not colored but it possesses color it possesses smell it possesses taste that's something that's that's one of the more uh, complicated and difficult issues that all of this is meant to point towards is where does where does uh, the existence of the qualities dwell that we experience we experience colors through the com, com coming together of our uh, visual sense faculty and our visual consciousness and the perception of a visual stimulus i.e a color but is the color in the the object that we're seeing the color you know from our western understanding is is exists in the way light is reflected by it and uh, light has different bandwidths whatever the hell that means <laughs> And uh, so we we experience different colors, and different beings see things as having different colors. I think, based on the way their eyes work. Anyway, I, I guess it's just a question in terms of the the color aspect you're describing. That while it may be true that the the redness or whatever does not adhere to the object, but the whatever characteristic of it that causes it to reflect in the way that results in red could still be viewed as a characteristic of the object yes but that's that's a great point and just to diverge from for a very small amount of time if time can be quantified in that way i don't really know but we say that is that uh, can we figure out okay so you you said there's color this is what we perceive and there's the object like a piece of paper and it the object possesses certain characteristic that reflects light in a certain way that we then perceive as red or white and so it get, you know it's a multiple re egress of like okay so that phenomena then has a characteristic it's not color but it's a color emanating characteristic <laughs> right you know whether it's a texture or what you know however you yeah yeah it. it's just, so I mean, is there some obviously I entity know I'm that's, years, but it is 
it's still that if there's you know a sheet that comes out blue and a sheet that comes out red clearly there's some factor in there that's causing that to be that way right and so is there a sheet that's beyond the red and the blue that possesses that characteristic is is part of what we're getting at well is it is the sheet separate from the characteristic that's what we're asking i'm not necessarily i would not say necessarily that it is separate yeah Yeah. okay so something to keep in mind when we go through all this stuff is that sort of question and uh these nebulous things such as uh, light and dark and heat and cold and time uh, push that question even further okay so as to how phenomena are said to possess substantial existence uh, existence and the terminology is odd right from the start they possess substantial existence as if there's an entity and then it has like a pocket or maybe a knapsack where it keeps its substantial existence it possesses it in general vibhashikas assert that any phenomena must be capable of bearing so it has to be able to uh, hold its own distinct identity if the distinct identity is too heavy for it to hold it then (laughs) it doesn't work and since for them no phenomena can be posited merely as a projected reality imputed to some other phenomena which is the madhyamaka and uh, chittamatra view they assert that all phenomena are substantially established all phenomena both uh, sorry not both but mind matter and non-associate formation in particular they assert that the three times exist as entities that retain their own distinct identities not as something imputed upon another phenomena furthermore every entity such as a sprout i love that they're into sprouts it's very healthy for example possessed the three times and also exists at the time of the future sprout as well as the past sprout this gets to be rather funny this whole thing about the three times in this way they speak of all three times as substantially established Thus, because they proclaim the three times to be subsets of substantially real entities, they're called by Bashikas. The etymological explanation is that they assert the three times to be subsets of substantially real entities on the basis of which the three times are positive. For example, there are three times in which a sprout exists as the sprout, and the sprout is universal, whereas sprouts of the three times are its instantiations. Instantiations. There you go as to how a vase for example exists in the past and future and how one posits a past vase and a future vase as vases it's as follows when a person is about to look at a vase both the eye sense faculty within the person's mind stream as well as the vase that will be its object are posited as future uh, since though these two are in the process of arising in contrast to the time of actually seeing the vase both the eye sense faculty within the continuum of the person as well as the object being seen or posited as present immediately after it's been seen both the eye sense faculty and the vase itself that was its object are posited as past therefore the vibhashikas assert the vase to be existent in both the past and future of the vase this is not to say that they assert today's vase exists yesterday or tomorrow furthermore given that the past vase and future vase already existed as a vase and will 
existence of Oz, and given that they respectively, and given that they belong to the same class as the present vase, the past and future vases are also posited as being vases. By analogy, even though some of the trees in the forest have not yet been turned into firewood, because they belong to the same class as firewood, they too are referred to as firewood, which is a really negative way to think of forests. But from some point of view, all wood is firewood whether it's being used currently as firewood or no no of, let's let's think the about them as carbon sinks instead <laughs> there you go <laughs> um, similarly because the milk of an udder of a cow belongs to the same class that already extracted as that already extracted it's referred to as milk these points are discussed in Vasubandhu's auto commentary we'll skip the quote Thus, follow, the following arguments are given in response to the objection that if the past and future would have substantial existence, conditioned things would then become permanent. That's a tough one. Since conditioned things possess the four characteristics of arising, enduring, decay, and disintegration, they do not become permanent. The three times are not permanent. Present consciousness observing the past where future has objects, consciousness arises in dependence on its object and sense faculties and the effects of past karma can come to fruition in the present. In this way, except for the Vaibhajyavadins, who apparently are one of the weirder versions of this Vaibhajyavadin, uh, one of the seven sub-schools of the Vada, this school maintains that both past and future possess substantial existence talking about the uh, Vaibhashikas. The Vaibhajyavadans, on the other hand, make the distinction that present time and those elements of the past that have not issued forth their effects possess substantial existence, whereas the future and those elements of the past that have already produced their effects do not possess substantial existence. Just to cut hairs, being cutting hairs. So skipping the quote, time as dependent and imputed in general, time is defined as a non-associated formative factor that is imputed on the basis of, basis of aspects of a material entity or a consciousness and is characterized by the change that permeates all conditioned phenomena. More specifically, time is posited merely on the basis of the three states of conditioned things, not yet arisen, arisen but not yet ceased, and arisen and ceased. Other than that, no substantially real identity independent entity, sorry, exists that can be identified as time. So the text explained that time, which is defined in terms of such states of existence, is so characterized because it relates to entities of cause and effect that have already come or come in and will come into being. Alternatively, it is so called because such conditioned things are consumed by impermanence alone. Being consumed by impermanence. Well, that, that will come up again, This uh, why things disintegrate. Sangha says, what is time? Time is imputed to the continuous occurrence of causes and effects. Time is like the, the activity of causes and effects. And then in Maitreya's differentiating the middle extremes, effects and causes already expended, so too those not expended are the others. That's one of the more cryptic quotes you've ever, you can ever come across. <laughs> Uh, and Vasubandhu explains it as referring to the three times. Anyway, skipping that, 
<clears throat> thus the three times the past, present, and future are posited in relation to the conditioned phenomena subsumed within the class of causes and effects in terms of having already occurred yet occur and occurring respectively. Now causes and effects were not uh, substantially existent phenomena. They were things, they were a way of classifying things in terms of their function, causes and effects, right? As for Nagarjuna and his followers in general, they posit times of phenomena that is utterly contingent and exists as a dependent origination. They reject any notion of time that is uniquely characterized. Sorry, that is a uniquely characterized real phenomenon, not dependent on temporal phenomena. Even so, from the perspective of everyday worldly convention in relation to a specific context, a shared common time can be posited. For example, temporal units such as year, month, and so on are posited on the basis of the accumulation of multiple temporal entities. One cannot posit such temporal units as a year, month, and so on independently by themselves. The Karjana states that if each of the three times were to have an inherently existent nature, the three times would merge into one. If present and future relied on the past, the present and future would exist in the past. In order for cause and effect to function as cause and effect, they need to exist at the same time. So if the past were the cause of the present, then the past and the present would have to exist at the same time and so forth. If time described as the present or the future existed inherently, would either present or future time be relying on the past? If they were relying on the past, then it follows that both would exist at the time of the past, but inherently established phenomena that do not exist anywhere do not rely on the past. And for such phenomena, so here we have a little flash to the Madhyamaka viewpoint of time and entities. Um, and for such phenomena, the basis relied upon and the phenomena reliant upon it must be posited as existing simultaneously to assert that these two times exist in the past is untenable because past time must be posited in terms of, of what is past from the present and the future must be posited as, as future in terms of what is yet obtained in the present. Thus, if these two were to have an inherently existing nature, their dependence on the past would be untenable. So skipping the quote, if the present and future did not rely on the past, they could not be posited as existent. By the same logic, both the past and future establish as relying on the present, and both the past and present are established as relying on the future, respectively. Thus, the guardian clearly elucidates that all three times are phenomena that are utterly interdependent. As does Aryadeva in his 400 stanzas and Chandra Kirti in his commentary to that text. We'd head to uh, chapter 18, positing the three times. And let's see. Okay, cool, good. Uh, it is on the basis of their cause and conditions that conditioned phenomena transform from the future to the present, from the present to the past. And when such phenomena transform in that way, they're posited as future, present, and past, respectively. Take, for example, the tree. The phrase sorry, the phase when it has not yet arisen at the time of its cause is posited as the future. <laughs> the phase when it has arisen but has not yet died is posited as the present. And the phase when it has died and its essential nature ceases is posited as the past. In the Vaibhashika system, the well-known way the four masters posit the three times differs slightly. 
So from this we learn that there's four Vaibhashika masters, main Vaibhashika masters, which was sort of interesting to learn on its own. And we have names for them, and they have a different point of view about time. Moreover, the system of Badanta Vasumitra is generally regarded as the best. He's the most on time, most of the time. And according to him, the future, present, and past are posited as action that has not yet arisen, action that has arisen but not ceased, and action that has been destroyed respectively. For example, when the seed's been planted in the field and before the sprout has arisen, it's posited as the future sprout, but it exists as a future sprout. And when it has arisen and until it's destroyed, it is posited or exists as the present sprout, and when it's been destroyed, as it is posited, it is posited as the past sprout and exists as such. Thus, Vasumitra asserted to be transformation from the future to the present. Sorry, this asserted to be transformation of the future to the present, or transformation of the present to the past. And uh, let's see. The four, the different assertions of the four masters is stated in the treasury of knowledge. There are four. The transformation of state, of characteristics, of context, and of mutual reliance. So these four masters have come up with different ways of characterizing time in the following way. One of them says it's transformation of state and so on. Thus there are four different presentations of the three times advocating these four aspects. But on to Dharmatrata is the advocate of the transformation of state. And keep in mind that the best one, according to um, uh, somebody, is uh, Vasumitra. So let's watch out for him. He's number three. So, Vedanta Dharmatrata, page 260, number one, is the advocate of the transformation of state. In his system, the three times are distinguished as a result of the different ways they are engaged by thought and language. When, for example, a sprout enters the present from the, from the future. <laughs> so it exists in the future and it enters the present through a, a certain doorway. It walks into the present. Um, sprout enters the present from the future, or enters the past from the present. Its state transforms, even though its substance does not transform. So there's a substantially existent thing called a sprout, and it has different states. It has three different states, past, present, and future. Skipping the quote, Vedanta Goshika is the advocate of the transformation of characteristics in his system, although something such as the sprout possesses the three characteristics, the past, present, and future, it is posited as past, and so on, by means of which characteristics are dominant. So if you have 10 particles of past and only one particle of present and future, then you would be characterized as past, since that's dominant. I don't know how else he came up with it. it. Must be particles of, of the three times. Three. Vedanta Vasumitra is the advocate of the transformation of perspective, and in his mode of assertion, as already been briefly explained, explained, explained. <laughs> for him, the three times are labeled according to what characteristic is dominant from their specific perspectives. When a sprout, for example passes from the future to the present, and from the present to the past, the perspective of the action not yet performed is called the future. 
the perspective of the action be formed, being performed rather, but not yet ceased, called the present, the perspective of the action having been performed and ceased, called the past. So he's the advocate of the transformation of perspective. It's just like how, you, how you're looking at it. Therefore, transformation is in name alone, and there is no transformation of a uniquely characterized real substance. So the sprout exists through all times, and um, the perception of it as we're as being as transforming through the three times and uh, being different is a perspective problem. Finally, we have Badanta Buddha Dev, who's the advocate of the transformation of mutual reliance. In his system, the three times are labeled in reliance on what occurs earlier or later, because when a single entity is located in the three times, it is future in reliance on the past and present that occurred earlier. It is past in reliance on the present and future that occurred later. It is present in reliance on the past that occurred earlier and the future that occurs later. Skipping the quote, in any case, here in the Vibhashika system, it said that time and conditioned entities are equivalent or mutually inclusive. Time and conditioned entities are the same things. The auto-commentary on the treasury knowledge says they are time, the basis of language, definitely transcended and possess a basis. They refers to conditioned phenomena. Conditioned phenomena are time, the basis of language, definitely transcended, I guess, through nirvana, and possess a basis. They constitute time because they have gone, are going, or will go, and they are consumed by impermanence. The Buddhist tenet systems of the Sautrantika, Chitramatra, and Swatantika, Madhyamaka are similar in how they posit three times. They assert that the past and future are necessarily permanent and non-implicative negations, i.e. they're not things. Whereas the present and all functional things are mutually inclusive or equivalent. So functional things only exist as functional things in the present. When, for example, a thing such as the sprout is destroyed, every part of the sprout ceases, and no other thing is obtained whatsoever since the past is such as the mere elimination of a negandum. That means the object of negation. So the past eliminates that which is to be eliminated, which is the entity of the present. It is not a functional thing anymore. It's no longer a present functional entity. So too, the future sprout is nothing other than the fact of not having arisen at some point due to its causing condition being incomplete. And ex since, except for the fact that an instance of a functional thing is not found, it is not described as a functional thing. This is a long-winded way of saying that none of them view uh, the past and the future as having any substantially real existence in any way. Skipping the quote, Dharmakirti, uh, means that the distinct disintegrated state and the past are not functional things. Going back to the quote that I just skipped, stating it is non-existent, it all is also to state it is not a thing. So Dharmakirti means that the disintegrated state of no longer being present in the past are not functional things. They don't perform a function. Since time is necessarily a non-associated formative factor, something like a vase, for example, is present, but it is not present time. Though the past and future are permanent, past time and future time are posited as functional things and non-associative formative factors 
functional things. Really? How did that happen? Though the past and future are permanent, past time. Oh, there's a difference between the past and past time. Oh, the past times. Like, you know, when the family gets together and you and you uh, reminisce about past times. I don't know. This sentence doesn't make sense to me. I, I think I, I had a glimmer of what it meant. Is that they're saying that like a thing that existed in the present but no longer exists, the thing itself is no longer there. So they don't buy the idea of substantial existence of a thing from the past. But I think what they're saying here is that the notion, the aggregate notion of past time, the, the sense of there is a past, that's a concept that we have, I guess. And so are, are they treating that as enough, essentially? The idea that there is a past and there is a future, not so. for a specific thing, but in a more generic so. way? I think so. It's just odd to say that they're functional things. <laughs> well, I further, mean, yeah, further, one must make the distinction that in general, a past vase is past, but in relation to the vase itself, it is future. <laughs> I'm going to skip that one. <laughs> Similarly, the, although future vase is future in relation to the vase itself it is past those are tough those will not be on the exam by the way in general in accordance with these systems the definition of the past is a disintegrated factor regarding the entity that is the negandum that is like meaning it's it's that which was disintegrated by the impermanence of the phenomena, like its disappearance, in other words. Past, cease, and disintegrated states are mutually inclusive. For example, a tree does not exist at the time of its disintegrated state, and a vase does not exist at the time of its effect. <laughs> not quite sure what the effect of a vase is, but... Maybe it's an <laughs> error. I think it's the next moment of the vase, but the definition of the present is arisen but not ceased. Present functional thing and conditioned phenomena are mutually inclusive. Examples include a vase, a pillar, and so on. I, I think, you know, this is a really, these two sections, particles and time, are, are not like taught in all systems of uh, collected topics. But it's sort of interesting that they've gone into them. It's rather long-winded. And uh, I think part of the takeaway is to see how phenomena are um, conceptual constructs, basically. And these ones in particular. Uh, let's see. The definition of the future is a thing that has not arisen owing to incomplete conditions, even though the cause of its arising exists. Like, my enlightenment is something that has not arisen owing to incomplete conditions. <laughs> uh, for example, the non-arising of a sprout in a field in winter and the non-arising of a vase at the time of its cause. If illustrated on the basis of a sprout, the time the sprout is destroyed is the pastime of the sprout. <laughs> it's a great, one of our favorite pastimes. 
tough crowd here tonight. The time of the sprout has not yet arisen, owing to its cause and conditions being incomplete at a specific place and time, such as an eastern field in winter, is the future time of the eastern sprout. The time of the sprout exists is the present time of the sprout. It's the time of the sprout. <laughs> Wasn't there a song like that? This is the time of the... Of, right. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Therefore, the time of its past and future is positive in reliance on the time of its present. We'll skip the quote. Prasangika Madhyamaka's view. Prasangika Madhyamaka's view. Now, it's like, is there a page missing or something? That sentence begins sort of abruptly, but Prasangika Madhyamaka's view as distinct from the three systems of Sautrantrika, Chittamatra, and Swatantrika Madhyamaka, all three times as past, future, and present as functional entities. They, it's because they're using view in this case as a verb. I know, but they, they have plural. They have plural. Yeah. So those people called Prasangika Madhyamaka's view all three times the past, future, and present as functional entities. They do not assert that the past and future are non-applicative negations, but rather that they are types of implicative negation, that they have substantial reality. Nonetheless, even though they accept the three times to be functional things, they differ from the Vaibhashikas since they do not accept the existence of the sprout itself at the time of the future sprout or the past sprout. So subtle distinction that they view uh, the past and the future as entities themselves, but not uh, the state of being past or future of other entities as being in any way substantially existent. According to this view, the past is defined as the thing that is already disintegrated. For example, a disintegrated sprout. They go bad pretty quickly, don't they? The future is defined as the thing that has not yet arisen owing to incomplete conditions, even though its productive cause exists. For example, an unarisen sprout at the time of the cause of the sprout. The present is defined as that which has arisen but not yet ceased, and is that is neither a disintegrated thing nor a future thing, for example, a sprout. So all of this is is sort of like a, an exercise in trying to understand what's being talked about. Ultimately, it's not that interesting or important, but um, to illustrate these definitions in relation to a sprout, the sprout itself is present, the disintegrated sprout, sprout is past, the unarisen sprout is positive, future sense in general, even though its cause exists at this time, its cause and conditions remain incomplete. Thus, the past and future are defined on the basis of some other entity in the present. And in that past is defined on the basis of its cessation, whereas future is defined on the basis of the incompleteness of conditions, even though its productive cause exists. In contrast, that's where the present is ne not necessary deposited on the basis of the cessation or non-arising of some other entity, since it is posited as the entity itself on the basis of its having arisen but not ceased. Therefore, from among the three times the present is posited as primary and the other two is secondary. <clears throat> For example, when one speaks of the future sprout, the present sprout, and the past sprout, the basis on which the three times are defined is the sprout. Uh, 
The future in the context of what is called future sprout is the future in relation to the time of the present. Similarly, the past in the context of what is called the past is the past in relation to the present sprout. Therefore, the present sprout is considered primary within the three times because you can actually eat that sprout. The other sprouts you can't actually eat. Any quotes from a sutra? We can skip the two quotes. As to how the disintegrated estate is established as a functional entity in the text of the Prasanga Madhyamaka, this will be explained more extensively when presenting the views of the philosophical schools in a subsequent volume in the compendium series, a little preview of the future. Planting a little seed that might sprout at some point in the future, which would be the future state of the seed. <laughs> but this topic is one of the most important topics is disintegration. How does how do phenomena that are impermanent uh, disintegrate? I think I skipped something. Wasn't there something about uh, impermanence, subtle impermanence? Oh, it's in the introduction. Okay. Um, to summarize, so 265, according to the system of the Garshanist philosophical heirs, he was famous for putting on philosophical heirs. The three times are posited in the following way, taken as an example, a sprout, a sprout that has arisen but not yet ceased. His posit is one phase of the sprout that's called a present fat sprout spout <laughs> anyway it continues you can see where that's leading um therefore past present and future due to their mutual reliance are designed designated rather through conceptual imputation established by popular convention none of the three times can be posited as inherently real also when one calculates a specific duration such as a year and so forth with respect to a specific basis which means like one substantially existent entity one may say up to this point is the past and from this point on is the future but it's difficult to discern anything remaining that may be called the present. So the question remains, which is bigger, the past or the future? Chris, what do you think? Which is bigger, the past or the future? The future, is, the future is bigger. The future is bigger. Why? Because it goes on. Right. <laughs> the past has a beginning and the end point which is now the future future goes on but the past goes back to the uh beginningless past right i mean it has it has an end point of now i agree with that but i don't know about the beginning part do we know the future has a beginning point of now right both of you but the question when he was saying is there a beginning point or not yeah is there Caitlin, any any opinion on what's bigger, the past or the future? I was gonna say it's like the question of are there more dead people or alive people today? Oh, like dead people history of the world or people that are alive today? Wow. And I, I've had this debate with a lot of people, and I, even my very 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 smart parents, they're like it's it's people today and I'm like no but the history of humanity and they're like is 10,000 years long it's not that long 
and we've doubled and quadrupled and yeah is it i mean i don't know that was what i thought of that's my 10 cents oh that's really three. cool but then it's the question of the people of the future which is uh since you mentioned it relative to the oh, past and the present God, but, where are we going to bury all those people yes. it's going to be a massive problem and I don't know if you guys have been following this whole thing about effective altruism or whatever this weird system is that people like the head of the crashed crypto uh, company, but they they talk about this logic of trying to optimize for the future based on the fact that there's you know these countless millions or billions of people in the future that would be affected by things, so they try to they claim they try to make decisions based on optimizing for the future and that so that kind of brings up the same question you were raising about like are there more people in the future than the past would be another variation on your question interesting it's like you can't you can't do um what's Kant's maxim like you know like the that you're the, the best of your duties i mean like there's something about if you are trying to rationalize making choices in the now that are going to affect people in the future, but like you're doing bad things in the now, then that's sorry. That's my little crypto. Right. For the Absolutely. For no, I mean, it's a, sorry. No, it's true that, that this thing sounded, it sounds good. You know, you first read about it and you think, Oh, that sounds good. And then you realize that if you really take it to its extreme, it's actually really very dangerous and dicey. <laughs> totally. Yeah, totally. So anyway, uh, going forward in the future, I circulated a new syllabus and I'm showing you like a number of chapters that I'm suggesting we don't go through. If anybody has like, uh, uh, there's like some chapter that you really want to go through, let me know. We'll try to include that. But uh, like many of them are, um, just endlessly repetitive and not that important like the, the current material. Except next week we have the shortest unit of time, which is slightly interesting, and subtle impermanence, which is both fascinating and incredibly important. So um, why don't we, we have a few minutes left, so I'll tell you this joke about time. Okay? It's about time. <clears throat> and there was a, a TV show called uh, Lost in Space, right? That began with a little ditty about time. Is that right? Mike, do I have that right? Anyone else remember? It's about time. It's about, no, it's about space. It's about two men from another place. That's uh, my favorite Martian, I think. Anyway, so uh, this yuppie couple, it's a beautiful fall day and this yuppie couple decide to go for a drive out of the city into the countryside and view the beautiful countryside in their very fancy, um, uh, some sort of uh, Lexus car and a convertible and they're cruising along and it's a beautiful sunny day and the leaves are just starting to turn and they pass by these orchards like an apple orchard huge apple orchard and another one and another one and they're like wow maybe we should stop and uh pick some apples you know that'd be fun isn't that what people do when they go driving in the country 
So, okay, they pull over at the next orchard and they get their basket and they're going and walking around, picking some apples. And uh, suddenly they, they turn the, the so-called corner of one row of apple trees and, and they look and they see this guy standing on a ladder holding a pig up in the air and the pig is eating an apple on the branch of the tree and the guys the, the the yuppie from the city says to the uh worker who's holding the the farmer who's holding the pig up uh he says sir excuse me but what are you doing and he says uh I'm holding this pig here so he can eat the apples from this tree. And the, and the couple are like dumbfounded, like that anybody would do that. What a weird thing to do. And the guy says, wouldn't it save time if you pulled the apples off the tree and put them on the ground and let the pig eat them uh, on its own? It would be faster. It would save time. And, and the farmer looks back and says, time? What's time to a pig? <laughs> it's one of those pig jokes. You have to like be into pig jokes to, to get it. it anybody... the first, I mean, it's a great, it's a good joke. Uh, it seems to me that even before you think about time, it's like the effort involved in holding the pig up. Right. Like the That's what, yeah, just to make it like ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. 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 Any other pig jokes, anybody? No? So why the, can't the, you trust Adams? Why can't you trust Adams? Oh, there's a trick to this. Can it, does anybody see it coming? Um, because they split, they they don't. They make up everything. Uh, <laughs> Drop the mic. That's good, Mary Beth. You got to use that with your kids. Did you get that? <laughs> so the same couple there. It's 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 becoming dusk, and uh, they decide to pull over at this uh, cool. Um, farm stand like restaurant by the side of the road and uh so they pull in and there's all these people there and and they they uh end up the uh, maitre d seats them says oh uh, so nice to have you here with us hey let me you're, you're probably new around here let me put you at the table with the owners and they're like wow that should be fun we get to hear about the whole place and so they get seated at this uh, big table with uh, all these rowdy people at it. And the, and one of the seats has a pig in it. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're serving dinner and they're serving the pig, this like fancy meal, just like everybody else. And uh, the couple are like, oh, geez, there's something going on with pigs around here. <laughs> what, uh, what's the deal with this pig? And the, the guy says, oh, my God, this pig has won so many awards. This pig is like the most unusual, purebred, like incredible pig. 
And so, you know, we got to treat this pig really well. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And uh, then they, they're looking at the pig more carefully and they notice the pig only has three legs. And they're like, oh, that's so sad. What happened to the to the fourth to the pig's leg did something happen and you had to amputate and, and the guy says no we ate, we ate one of the legs of the pig and they're like wait a second you just told me how how um amazing this pig is why did why did you eat one of its legs and and the guy looks at him like like you, you gotta be you must be really stupid. Um, he looks back at him and he says, "A pig like that, you can't eat the whole thing at once." <laughs> Caitlin, it's your turn. Any any more? I'm all out. <laughs> Tapped out. Sorry, that was, guys. That was a good one, though. Oh no, okay. I have one more, and I and I've told you it before okay but not everybody what else you, what do you call the irish guy who hangs out on your lawn all summer patio furniture <laughs> could you say that again totally it's a it's a thinker and it's an accent one so it's hard what do you call the irish guy who hangs out on your lawn all summer Patio furniture. Oh, oh, like oh. Patio, patio oh, furniture. Got it. Got it. Patio <laughs> furniture. That's good. Two new jokes tonight, you guys. But for me, that, four for you. Well, the, your pig one kind of relates to the old saying, this one's not really a joke, but uh, it, they used to say, you know, you are what you eat. And so then they'd say, so, you know, why be a vegetable? Instead, eat people who are smarter and more good-looking than you. Uh, that's good. That's, that's pretty good. Okay. Well, I'm glad I made it home for the joke and the dedication of merit. Just in time. Just in time. Whatever the hell time is. <laughs> and, uh, and remember, why can't you trust atoms? They make everything up. They make up everything. That's it. So let's dedicate them <laughs> by this merit mail obtain omniscience made to feed the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to go to plow through this material. Oh, it was nothing. <laughs> it was non. It was a non-implicative negation. <laughs> and I uh, wish you a very happy holiday, regardless of how you celebrate it. Thank, thank you. Guys, thank you. Bye.